So let me start over. My name is Bill Gorman, and uh, I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. It's so great to have each one of you uh, here with us this morning. It, it truly is good to see each one of your faces, and especially if you're a guest. I'm so glad that you, uh, that you joined us uh, here this morning. And uh, as we get ready to look at this passage that uh, Jeanette just read for us, I'd love to pause and just pray and ask for God's help to understand it. Um, We know that that he's given us this gift of his word, and he's not only done that, but he's also given us uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which helps us to be able to understand uh, the Bible, which he has written to us. And so um, let's pause right now and do that. Father in heaven, we're so thankful uh, for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit who who brings uh, your word to life. And uh, I pray that this would not merely be um, words on page, but that they would be words of life uh, to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, with sort of midterms and spring break now uh, fully in swing and kind of coming to an end, uh, if you're on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, you're probably seeing posts kind of light up with, with hashtags like, Hashtag no regrets or, or no regret or, or, or hashtag YOLO. And if you don't speak Twitter, uh, YOLO means you only live once. It's an abbreviation for that. And so as, as we post kind of these, these crazy exploits uh, on break or, or, or blowing off studying to hang out with friends or, or pictures of, of eating or drinking too much, somehow we feel like adding this hashtag of, of no regrets or of YOLO uh, seems to justify our actions, making it okay. Because, hey, you know, you only live once. Um, actually, I think this image uh, posted on Twitter, I think, really kind of captures this, this philosophy well. It says, life is too short to worry about stupid things. Have fun, regret nothing, and don't let people bring you down. And, and at first, I, this actually seems like great advice, doesn't it? I mean, but, but the trouble is that it isn't. Um, it isn't livable. Uh, and, and there are re- two reasons that this kind of piece of advice isn't livable for us. First, despite what our, what our hashtags on our, our pictures might say, uh, we do actually have things uh, that we regret, don't we? I and mean, we, we actually have experiences that we do regret. And, and, and in those still moments alone at a stoplight or, or walking the dog or, or flipping through some old photos, our minds can, can wander to these moments that we wish weren't a part of our story. And those feelings of regret can begin to creep in. I was reminded of this the other day when I saw a photo um, from the, the Humans of New York uh, webpage. And I, I have it here. You can put it up here. Humans of New York is, is a, fo- a photo blog that was started in, in 2010 uh, by photographer Brandon Stanton. And he posts portraits of people. He just goes around New York City and takes photographs of people. And then along with those photographs, he just puts a short quote from an interview with them. Um, and it's a fascinating sight because people are fascinating. I mean, just ordinary individual people are fascinating. And uh, this, this one captured my uh, attention, not just because the picture is kind of striking, but what the uh, little snippet from the interview that was posted with us. This is what this woman in the photograph said during her interview. She says, I wish I would have partied a little less. People always say be true to yourself, but that's misleading because there are two selves. Your short-term self and your long-term self. And if you only are true to your short-term self, your long-term self slowly decays. Do you resonate with what she's saying? Even that language of I wish or I wish I'd never, that's, that's the painful vocabulary of regret, isn't it? 
And as much uh, as, as, as we hate it, we, we, just, we find ourselves in these, these places. Even the band uh, Foster the People, they just came out with, with a new single. It's called Coming of Age. And they sing. They capture the same tension. They, say, they sing this. They say, you know, I always try to live without regrets. I'm always moving forward and not looking back. But I tend to leave a trail of debt while I'm moving forward. And so I'm stepping away. We feel, we try to live without regrets, and yet we somehow feel that in in our wakes, we leave this trail of debt and pain. And and so regret, this kind of hashtag of no regrets, it just isn't livable uh, because of this. But also it isn't livable because there's some things that we do that that really do elicit a feeling of regret, that rightly elicit a feeling of regret. And sometimes there are choices and decisions that we make that, that are worthy of regretting. And to say that you have no regrets in life is, is functionally to say everything I've done ever is the, was the right choice. And so we all live with regret. And it's one of the most debilitating and crushing emotions that we can experience. It can paralyze us. It can haunt us. And I think there are three main ways that we try to deal with regret. The, the first is I think we can try to ignore it or pretend that it doesn't exist. This is kind of the, the hashtag no regret, hashtag YOLO approach to life. Um, but as we just saw, this isn't, doesn't really work. It's not really a livable approach. I think the second way we can try to deal with regret is to, um, in some way, go back and, and undo it. Uh, to try to go back in time. Re- recently, Rachel and I watched the film About Time. It's kind of this delightful, kind of romantic, sentimental film about this guy who has the ability to go in a closet and close the door and, and kind of clench his fist, close his eyes, and go back in time. And, and so all throughout the film, he's able to, to go back to these moments where he messed something up and, and redo the same moment over again. We'd all love to have that ability. But I love what Yale Divinity professor Miroslav Volf writes. He said, if somehow we could only go back and undo the done deed, wrongdoing would be gone. But we can't. He says, in the heat of an argument, we say an unkind word or make an exaggerated accusation and our opponent challenges us. Take that back. And he says, even if we consent and say, all right, I didn't mean what I said, he says, we still haven't really taken it back. Our words remain forever uttered, even when they are long forgotten. See, we, we can't go back in time. We can't truly take our words back or, or undo actions. And, and so this approach fails us also. I think the third way we try to deal with regret is to do something to repair it, to, to repair what went wrong, to, to make up for what we did, to atone for our wrong in some way. But, but the trouble here is, that the very act of doing this is a, is a constant reminder of the very thing that, that we did in the first place that caused the regret. So, I mean, maybe it's helpful in sort of making some kind of restitution, but it doesn't deal with the regret. But there's another way to deal with regret that actually deals with it permanently, that can actually free you from the burden of it. And whether you're this morning here and you consider yourself a Christian or, or you're like, I'm not even sure about the church, but somebody brought me here this morning and, and I'm just kind of stuck here now. Um, what, no matter where you're at uh, this morning, this, this question of how do you deal with regret is one that we all have to, to wrestle with. In order to live a, a life that is truly good and wise, we have to figure out how do we deal with this emotion, this sense and feeling of regret. So, so what is this way? What's this way of dealing with regret? Well, in a word, forgiveness. You see, regret is rooted in guilt and shame. And, and as we've been learning in the book of Hebrews over the last several weeks, that the, the only way to really deal with guilt and shame that, that causes this regret is through sacrifice 
that brings about forgiveness. But, but not just any sacrifice. What we're going to see this morning is that there's only one sacrifice that's good enough, that's sufficient to, to deal with the regret-causing guilt and shame that plagues each one of us. And through the last four chapters of the book of Hebrews, the author has been making the case that Jesus is the only one who can really deal with our sin, who can really deal with our failure, our brokenness, and our regret. In chapter 7, we saw that Jesus is a better high priest who's our advocate. And then uh, chapter uh, 8, Tim showed us that, that how Jesus initiates a better covenant that enables us to really know God. And last week, Claire walked us through how Jesus provides a better judgment that actually frees us from judgment. And this morning here in chapter 10, we're going to see that Jesus provides a better sacrifice. And there's only one sacrifice that's good enough. There's only one sacrifice that's good enough to remove guilt and free us to live without regret. So so in this passage, the author is going to show us, one, why we can't remove our own guilt. Two, how Jesus removes our guilt. And then lastly, he's going to show us what happens when Jesus does remove our guilt. So, so why we can't, how Jesus does it, and then what happens when he does. So first, we can't remove our own guilt. And this is what the author shows us in the first four, chapters, or first four verses of chapter 10. This is before the section that was read for us earlier. And if you have a Bible and you're still there, it's on page 1006, or just maybe navigate. I'd love to show you this in verses 1 through 4. This is what the author of Hebrews writes. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, the author of this letter, it's really a sermon that was written down, is speaking to a group of Christians who have a Jewish background. They grew up as, as Jews following the law, and now they've come to Christ, and he's speaking. So they're very familiar with this Jewish sacrificial system. And what he is telling them is that those sacrifices weren't an end in of themselves. That those sacrifices were never the main point. They were important, God had commanded them, but ultimately they were just a foreshadowing of the good things that were to come, namely Jesus. Now how do we know this? Well, we'll look at what he says in verse 2 again. He's making the point that if these sacrifices were effective in doing what ultimately needed to be done, they wouldn't have to be kept doing over and over again. If they worked, if they were effective in actually cleansing our conscience, moving this out of our minds... Then, then we would just do it once and it would be over. But, but that's not how it works. He says in the Jewish sacrificial system, you keep offering sacrifices over and over and over again. In fact, not only are these sacrifices not effective in cleansing our consciences, in removing a sense of guilt and regret, verse 3 tells us that they actually serve as a constant reminder of the guilt and regret. And so this work of, of sacrifice, of bringing it, actually was a constant reminder that we don't live up, that we are insufficient, that, that our, the regret, the guilt is still there. And this is why we can't remove guilt on our own. When we work to remove our own guilt to atone for our own wrongdoing and regret, there remains this constant reminder of that guilt. 
Um, I, I had the, in fact, the harder you work at making amends and living a good life, the more you realize how messed, you, uh, messed up you really are. I had this experience in, in high school when I began to kind of explore faith more, more seriously and become interested in, in what does it mean to really to live like God designed us to live. And so I started working really hard to, to be good. And what I found was that the, the harder I tried to be a good person, to obey God, to live rightly, the, the more frustrated I became. You see, when, when I didn't care about being a good person, I didn't really realize how, how bad I was. It wasn't until I started trying that I realized, man, this, is, this goes way deeper than I thought. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says um, that no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. It's kind of like cleaning the kitchen. Kitchen. I have this experience every time I clean the kitchen. It's like you clear the plates off the counter, you get them loaded up, and I'm like, okay, this looks good. But then you notice, oh, the, the counters are kind of dirty. So I, I grab the, the cleaner, and I kind of spray down the counters. And as I'm down close watching the counters, now that looks good. But now the cabinets look dirty in comparison to the, the counter. And so I'm down, you know, kind of spraying off the cabinets, and now I'm on the floor. And I'm like, oh, man, the floor's really dirty, too. This is what happens in our lives. The, the, as we successively kind of clean each area and work hard, we just realize there's another layer down, another layer down. See, you, you can't deal with your own guilt because the moment that you try, you become aware of your sin. And the moment you try and do this and you become aware of the sin, try harder, you only embark on a process of either pride or despair. You become prideful when you start succeeding. I feel really good. The, the counter's clean. Wow, I'm doing a great job here. But then you despair when you realize how dirty the floor is. So this is the process. I mean, it works when you're cleaning the kitchen, but this is how all of our life works. You oscillate between these two extremes of either despair or pride. And both of those postures, despair and pride, make you a pretty miserable person to be around. <laughs> and, and this is actually why sometimes the people that we consider to be the most religious, those who are, are working the hardest to keep the rules, are actually some of the most kind of uptight and insecure people to be around. Because they're either in this place of pride or despair going back and, and forth. You see, our efforts to deal with our own guilt, even if we are deeply religious, ultimately are ineffective. And this is what the author gets at in verse 4 when he writes, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Uh, I love what commentator Peter O'Brien writes here. He says, The blood of animals cannot remove sin. Instead, these sacrifices simply provided a yearly reminder of sins. Okay, so verses 1 through 4 show us that we can't remove our own guilt. And in the next section, verses 5 through 10, the author shows us how Jesus, our true and better high priest, is actually effective at removing our guilt. Take a look at, at those verses, 5 through 10. The author continues, this is, So consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have no pleasure... Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then the author says, When he had said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first, with the sacrifices, in order to establish the second. The second is his will. And by that will, we have been sanctified. We'll come to what that word means in a moment. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
So the previous verses helped us understand why animal sacrifices were insufficient, why they, they didn't deal with our consciences. That's what was the problem. They, they could kind of be this outward sign, but they could never deal with our consciences, with this, this feeling of regret, with this internal sense of guilt and shame. In fact, they, they did the opposite. They reminded us of them. So these verses help us understand how Jesus is able to do what the animal sacrifices couldn't. So the author quotes part of Psalm 40. If you notice in your Bible, it might be kind of broken out into to poetry form. The author is quoting Psalm 40. And the Psalms are a collection of, of poetry in the Old Testament, the, the first half of the Bible. And, and many of the Psalms point either directly or indirectly to the coming of Jesus and what he would do when he came. And this is what is happening here. The author is making a lot of these connections for us. He's saying, look, this Psalm 40, is, this is really about Jesus. And he kind of puts these words onto Jesus' lips. And the author is using Psalm 40 to, to explain that even in the Old Testament, God wasn't really after sacrifices in and of themselves. He's saying, look, even in the Old Testament, we have these pictures where the sacrifices weren't what God really wanted. What, what he was after was the hearts of his people. He desired for them to do his will. A, a classic passage in the Old Testament that talks about this is, is 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel is a, a book that kind of records some of the history of Israel becoming a nation. And one of God's spokesmen, Samuel, asks this question. He says, has the Lord as great a desire in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying him? Behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to listen than to the fat of lambs and rams. You see, Jesus the author explains, by perfectly doing God's will, does away with this first way of relating to God through animal sacrifices, and now sets up this new and permanent way of relating to God through obedience, but not through our obedience. We've already established that that, that's not a way that's going to work, but through Christ's obedience, through Jesus obeying perfectly the Father's will. You see, Jesus is the one person who truly had nothing to regret in his life. He lived a life in which he did everything that his father willed. As a result, when Jesus offers his body as a sacrifice, it is effective in sanctifying, again, we'll come to what that word means in just a moment, effective in sanctifying his people completely, once and for all. Okay, so you're probably thinking now, Bill, this is, this is good, this is interesting, maybe. Uh, I'm trying to stay with you here. But, but how does Jesus living a regret-free life and, and offering his body as a sacrifice, how does that remove my guilt? How does that remove my sense of, of, of regret? Um, and, and actually, then, what in the world does it mean for Jesus to sanctify me? I'm not sure what that means, uh, but I, I don't know if I like it. I don't know if I want to be sanctified. Do I, does that sound like... That may be a good process, I'm not sure. Well, those are great questions. And that actually, those bring us to the next point, which is what happens when Jesus removes our guilt? What happens when he removes our guilt? There are two things, and we actually see them both in verses 11 through 18, which Jeanette read for us earlier. First, notice in verse 14 here, the author says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Again, here's that word. And that word sanctified, this language means to be included in the circle of all that is holy, complete, and lacking in nothing. To, to be sanctified is to be declared, to, to, to actually participate in, to participate in holiness, to be participate in all that is complete and lacking in nothing. It's to be considered to be uh, pure, unstained, even as God himself is pure, holy, and unstained. It means to be considered as having nothing that would cause you regret. 
Now, now I think sometimes when we hear the language of purity, we almost kind of instantly think of like puritanical. Like I think when we think about moral purity, it, it actually doesn't necessarily look that attractive to us because um, we have a caricature of it in our mind. But when we think about just the word purity, we, we, we long for purity, right? When it comes to our, our drinking water, when it comes to our food, when it comes to our dishes and our plates, when it comes to our medicine, we want those things to be pure. I mean, purity in that sense, is, it's deeply attractive, desirable. And if you meet a person who, who's genuinely, not self-righteously pure, but who's just genuinely a good person, they're deeply attractive to be around. And this is, this is possible for us to be that kind of person in the gospel. In fact, if we're in Christ, we already are that. So that's what happens when Jesus removes your guilt. Actually, the author says, you are perfected for all time. Now, commentator Robert Guthrie helps us understand why, what this means to be perfect for all time. Because obviously none of us yet are, are following God's will perfectly So what does it mean to say that we are already perfect? This is what Guthrie writes. I think this is so helpful. He says the term perfect, as it's used in Hebrews, carries the sense of of complete or whole or adequate, having arrived at a desired end. And, And then he goes on. This is where it's really helpful. He says, insofar as Christ has perfected us for all time, it means that by his sacrifice, he has completely, he has made us completely adequate for a relationship with God. He has made us completely adequate for a relationship with God. We have arrived at the end that God desired to accomplish via his son's death on the cross. His work put us in a right relationship with himself. All of that work has been complete. That's what it means for us to be perfect. There's no more work left to do for you to relate to God. It's all been done. It's been done in the past. You are perfect already in that sense. So Jesus' offering has perfected us once for all, timelessly, past, present, and future. And this is why, while the Old Testament priests, this passage said, stood daily at their service because their work was never done. They had to keep offering the sacrifices. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus' work, when it was done, he sits down. The the priests stand daily. Jesus finishes it, and then he sits down because his single offering is done. It's complete. He doesn't work anymore. He sits because it was good enough that one can to cover everything. He makes a single offering of himself, and then he sits down because his work is completed. You see, when Jesus removes our guilt, we are made whole and pure and adequate in every way for a relationship with God. There's no more work left to do on that front. Second, when Jesus removes our guilt, we are forgiven. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. Actually, really, through forgiveness, that's the means by which the guilt is removed in the first place. The author says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, and he quotes from a passage that he had referenced earlier, This is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put their laws, my laws in their heart, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, And I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So here the author is going back to a passage from the Old Testament, prophet of Jeremiah, which he quoted at length in chapter 8, and he reminds us of the two promises of the new covenant, this new way of relating to God that Tim had unpacked for us a couple weeks ago that Jeremiah speaks about. He says, the law will be in us, and there will be no more remembrance of sins. This is why Jesus' sacrifice is better. Listen how to one person puts it. He says, so the sacrifices made under the law served as a reminder of sins, but by contrast, Jesus' sacrifice inaugurated a new covenant under which God promised to remember their sins no more. You see, where there's forgiveness of sins, there's no longer any need of sacrifice. 
This is why it can end, because Jesus has done this perfectly. There's no longer any need for it to keep repeating over and over and over again. Because sins have been forgiven. They've been dealt with once for all. Jesus has done the work of sacrifice. He completed everything necessary for you to know God, to be accepted by God, to be in right relationship with God. You don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to, to wallow in regret. Jesus has taken all of that for you. In this reality that our sin has been decisively dealt with through Jesus, through his once-for-all single sacrifice, it, it transforms how we deal with regret, how we deal with failure. And, and I, I just want to point out at least three ways in which it, it radically transforms the way we deal with this. First, we repent differently. It completely changes the way we repent. You remember I said at the beginning, one of the ways that we try to deal with regret sometimes is just to make up for it, to, to kind of do penance or, or try to work at doing something. And sometimes people call this repentance or, or doing penance. But this often simply becomes just another way of trying to earn forgiveness. And, and it only, again, serves to remind us of that very thing that we regret. However, there is a way to repent that is, that is grace-centered, that is gospel-centered rather than, than, than religion-centered, than, than guilt-centered. And, I, and I, Pastor Tim Keller, he's so helpful at this point. He points out that there's a religious way of repenting, and then there's a, a gospel way of repenting. He says the, the religious way of repenting is self-righteous, and he says repentance can easily turn into a way to atone for one sin, a form of, a form of self-flagellation in which we try to convince God and ourselves that we are so truly miserable and regretful that we deserve to be forgiven. But he says in the gospel, however, we know that Jesus suffered for our sin. We, have do, we do nothing to make ourselves suffer, so we don't have to do anything to make ourselves suffer to merit God's forgiveness. We simply receive forgiveness earned by Christ. In religion, we try to earn our forgiveness with our repentance. In the gospel, we simply receive it. Also, religious repentance is bitter all the way down, Tim points out. He says, in religion, our only hope is to live a good life, a life good enough to require God to bless us. And he says, therefore, every instance of sin is, and repentance is, is horribly traumatic, unnatural, and threatening. Only under great duress, Tim says, do religious individuals admit that they have sinned because their hope is in their moral goodness. But in the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we are flawed because we know that we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. So it is not traumatic, as traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses. Where in religion, we repent less and less often. The more we feel accepted and loved in the gospel, the more and more we will be repenting. And although there's always some bitterness and repentance in the gospel, there's ultimately a sweetness. This creates a radical dynamic for personal growth. Listen to how Tim continues this. He says, Therefore, when we see our flaws and sins, the more precious and electrifying God's amazing grace appears to us. On the other hand, the more aware we are of God's grace and our acceptance, the more we are able to drop our denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of our sin. The sin underlying all the other sins is a lack of joy in Christ. I think this, this chart I have captures well what, what Keller is describing. So the more that we become like Christ, the more aware of God's holiness we are, and that this is the kitchen cleaning process, the more aware of our brokenness we become. But as we grow in both those directions, as we understand more of who God is, and we understand more of who we are, actually the gospel becomes more glorious to us. You see, if we truly understand 
the, God's holiness, the more I understand my sinfulness. But if I truly understand what Jesus has done for me in the cross, then the gospel only becomes more amazing, more powerful, more beautiful as I understand more and more what it took to rescue me. So the more we see how beautiful, how holy God is, and how broken we are, actually, if, if we get the gospel, the gospel just becomes all the more amazing to us. So we repent differently. Secondly, we, we also forgive differently. We extend this amazing forgiveness that we have received now to others. And the gift uh, that we give others the gift of not bearing regret for the wrongs they have done us by forgiving them. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesian church, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We extend to others the forgiveness that we have received. You see, our willingness to forgive others is is a test of whether we've truly understood and transformed by the gospel. The stingier we are in our forgiveness is just an indication that we have a pretty weak understanding of the gospel and what God has done for us. And then finally, we draw near differently. Since, Since our guilt has been removed, our consciences have been cleansed from regret, This means that we're now free to come to God without any kind of shame, without these these regrets that plague us. In fact, I want to take a moment right now, and and I just want to ask and and pause and ask you to do something. I want you to, this might be hard, but I want you to stop right now, and I want you to think of some of your greatest regrets. Those things that if you had, if you could do anything, if you could go back in time and undo these, these, these would be the, the things that you would go back and, and undo. Think about those things that, that plagued your conscience, those things that are in those, those still moments that come creeping back into your mind. Those things that make you feel separated from God. Do you have those things in mind? Now hear me, those are exactly the things that Jesus once for all, single sacrifice, cleanses, removes, and forgives. Now, and now for some of us, uh, that greatest moment of regret is maybe still in the future. It hasn't even happened yet. But even now, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for that in the future. You see, hell, the separation from God in hell, it's a place of unending, crushing regret. But the good news of the gospel is that sins can be removed. At the core of the message of the New Testament, at the heart of the gospel is the good news that sins can be forgiven. This is why Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. If you don't believe me, I just want you to listen to a few passages, actually actually more than a few. I want you to, again, hold those things in your mind that, that, that are just your greatest regrets, and then I want you to feel the force, the power of the good news that sins can be forgiven. These are just a few of the passages from the New Testament. Matthew 26, 28. For this, by this blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Mark 1.4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 1.77, to give, Jesus came to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Luke 3.3, 3, and he, Jesus, went into all the region of Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke 24.47, repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And God exalted him, Jesus, at the right hand as a leader and a savior to give Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. To him all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let it be known, this is Acts 13.38, Therefore, brothers and sisters, through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed. Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes and that they may turn from darkness to light and to them the power of Satan, to the power of God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, 22, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified without, with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then here in ten eighteen, where there is the forgiveness of sins. There's no longer any need for offering for sin. The gospel, the New Testament, is about the forgiveness of sins. That removes regret, deals with it permanently. You see, we can draw near to God in confidence, in joy, in delight, in peace, because our sins, our regrets, our failures have been utterly and finally and completely for all time dealt with by Jesus' perfect sacrifice. You see, the only way to truly live life with no regrets is to trust the one who actually did live life without any regrets. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that you and the gospel free us from the crushing weight of regret and guilt and shame. I pray that you would keep this message of the gospel alive in our hearts. Because everything about us is is pointed in a direction that wants to earn, that wants to, to merit, that wants to atone, that wants to do this on our own. And that is only the way of death. And so I pray that we would we would seek the way of life that says Jesus has already done this and we can be free. In Jesus' name. Well, this morning, uh, communion is one of the primary ways which we know, which we remember, which we apply that finished work of Christ once for all sacrifice. It reminds us of that good news. It it feeds us. It nourishes us. And we also, as we celebrate communion this morning, we also offer uh, prayer um, back here near the sound booth. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you need someone just to pray with you, to pray over you, to, to have a, maybe there's something that you regret or that you just feel the weight of. And you say, I just need someone to to pray and help me sense afresh, or maybe for the first time, the good news of the forgiveness that Jesus offers. We'd love to do that with you um, during uh, the time of communion. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to celebrate communion with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have clinged on to that message of forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection, you're welcome at his table. If you're here this morning, you're like, I'm still not really sure what that means. I don't know if I'm comfortable going up to this table. That's great. We'd love for you just to pause and use this time to to pray, to reflect, um, come and receive prayer.
Um, we'd love for you to do that. So when you come, just gather in groups of four or five around the table, uh, tape the bread, dip it in the, the cup, and then partake together as a group. There's gluten-free communion available here at this station. Um, like I said, there's four around the room, two up front and two in the back. Um, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he's commanded us to do this in remembrance of him. So come when you're ready. Come to the Lord's table.